Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Burley Fishers Isolation Station. Not so isolated right now. Lockdown has been somewhat lifted. Uh, I'm your host, Dan Fuller, joined today by the main man, Sam Fisher. What's going on, Sam? <laughs> CLD brothers, back in business. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, good. I'm good. Sun shining. Played tennis this morning. Um, Very sporty. Yeah, I mean, you guys don't need to know that, but <laughs> making me feel good. What did you have for yeah. breakfast, Sam? Eggs, always eggs, Dan. Always eggs. You know this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful, exciting, engaging content here today. It is. <laughs> so we've been reopened uh, for three weeks now. I, I've run out of small talk. So that, that, that that's all you're getting. It's just, it's just talk about tennis and eggs. Um, yeah, but we, it's been great to be reopened. It's been good, hasn't it? You've been back in the shop as well, Dan. I have, yeah. Back in the shop, back raining over my uh, my court. <laughs> Is that how you describe it to your friends? <laughs> I do, yeah. The king in his palace. No. I <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Who have we got today, Sam? Today, uh, we're doing something new because we like to keep it fresh. Um, every month, we are going to be interviewing the author or translator or combination of both of the indie fiction subscription pick <clears throat> and this month whoop, whoop, it is uh isabel wall and mm. we'll be talking about her novel uh cold new climate um cold new climate is tells the story of lydia a woman in her late 30s who feeling restless in her relationship with her older partner tom takes a trip to greece to figure out what she wants but when she returns to new york her commitment to tom reaffirmed by separation she finds that he has fallen in love with someone else Months later, still reeling from the breakup, she reconnects with Tom's son from a previous relationship, Caleb. And that, but as she gets closer to Caleb, she's pushed further and further from her old life. Uh, in The Guardian, Lara Feigl wrote that, Wilde takes the style of her contemporaries and gives it new twists in this confident, pleasurable novel. Uh, and I concur with Lara Feigl. Uh, it's a really fantastic uh, piece of fiction and a really accomplished debut novel. So I, I really enjoyed talking to Isabel about it. So that'll be coming up next. And I really enjoyed listening to that introduction. Methinks the man may have prepared somewhat. <laughs> what, my, my natural cadences were slightly off of that. It's like a newsreader voice. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, it certainly makes an improvement from the usual. Uh, we have an author. Here's their book. All right. <laughs> All right. On that note, yeah. let's pass over to Isabel. <laughs> Hey, Isabel. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on Burley Fisher's Isolation Station to talk about your debut novel, Cold New Climate. How's it going? I'm well. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, and thank you for sounding so sunny uh, the 400th time that we've done this. Uh, <laughs> full disclosure, to anyone having a few technical issues, but um, you're not going to be able to tell because it's going to be seamless from here on it's out. It's going to be great. We've cracked it. It's going to be perfect. This is this is going to be the perfect podcast. Yeah. Um, so, cold new climate. Um, mm -hmm. This book uh, I'm particularly excited to talk about because a large part of it was written in the back of the bookshop, which is a first for us. Um, so uh, yeah, we're delighted <laughs> to be able to I don't know to have a Burley Fisher baby 
if it can yeah. be maybe that's a little grandiose but <laughs> I mean it, it was I mean it, it, I did actually um I came like every morning when I was writing the opening of the novel um and really I think the first half of it I would I would come and order my black Americano and um sit at the uh, beautiful large tables um, surrounded by books and and write and it was it was totally the the best place to work that I really could have asked for so um, thank you for that it was perfect and this is this is I'm going to quote this it's like an excellent advert for when we reopen the cafe <laughs> yeah I'm going to put a jingle before it and after <laughs> and we'll be uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll blast it we'll like have it on a megaphone outside the front of the shop um, it's true because everywhere else has those tiny little round tables. And if you want to write, they're very annoying. And also yeah. you have books. So if you want to take a break, you can stand up and browse books and talk to nice people and then get back to your work. So much better. Booksellers hate white covers and round tables. So yes. um, yeah. <laughs> both those things. Not allowed mm. in the cafe either. Um, mm. So, yeah, I mean, Another thing that I should mention off the bat is it's, uh, as well as being a debut novel, it's the first title from a new press, Weatherglass um, Press. So tell me a little bit um, and tell our listeners a little bit more about how the book came about and how you came to find Weatherglass before we go on to talk about the book. It's a um, sort of amazing organic uh, story. Um, I had met Neil Griffiths very briefly at a Fitzcarraldo launch um, several years ago. Uh, and it was actually like my one extroverted evening um, because I usually don't really talk to strangers that much, but um, somehow I was in an extroverted social mood and um, Neil, who was doing the, um, well, who obviously founded the Republic of Consciousness Prize and uh, had a podcast associated with that asked me to come on his podcast to chat about um, Now Now Louison by Jean Fremont, uh, which is an amazing book uh, published by Les Fugitives. And um, so we just stayed in touch. I wrote a book of short fiction, sent that to him. He really liked it, um, asked if I wanted to meet to chat about it. Also at Burley Fisher, mind you. Uh, we met Unity. in the back of the cafe, and uh, in the back of the bookshop at the cafe, and um, he said he was starting a, a press and did with um, his co-founder, Damien Lanigan, and did I have anything that I, you know, that might be novel-ish or novella-ish? And um, I actually had had this idea that I had started to work on and then put aside, and I sort of said, um, yeah, let me, I have something, let me polish it up and um, send you the beginning. Um, mm. And I basically, I mean, I threw out a lot of what I already had and I basically wrote the first 20,000 words of the book and sent it to them and they, um, they were interested and took it based on that. So it was kind of, kind of actually completely wild and, and weird, um, but it's been wonderful. It's a beautifully um, written piece of work so they made the right decision um, <laughs> and they would like to find you in 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 the back in among the stacks of books. yeah um but that also leads me very neatly uh onto my next question which is uh i want i was interested actually about how the book came about in the sense that um for those that haven't read it uh which as it just came out will probably be most of our listeners um the book follows lydia 
at the start of the novel as she takes a trip to Greece uh, to think about her relationship, which she's not sure she's happy in. Uh, and she then returns to her um, home in the US to find that um, despite the fact that she's decided that she's committed to the relationship, her partner has fallen in love with someone else. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I suppose my question is, did Lydia come first or did uh, Greece and the return come first? And the tensions that you explore in the novel, did it come a character or, um, or, or with the scenario? The scenario, but not not in as much detail as as going to Greece necessarily, but the the interpersonal scenario that um, that you had this woman who was in the rela- in a relationship with a man who's much older than she is, and because of that, sort of makes certain assumptions about um, the idea that he'll be waiting for her when she returns so she she basically goes off with the idea that when she comes back um you know she can sort of have a dalliance and sort of have some some sexual exploration and figure out if if she is happy with him and take time to think and see if she really loves him but she doesn't really think that he will be evaluating the relationship in the same way mm-hmm. um and i think one could you know obviously it's it's like a kind of um i don't know an entitlement or a feeling of like the the expectations we make um all the 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 assumptions we make all the time about sort of what we take for granted and the conditions in which we live you know she she goes into it thinking well tom really loves me the partner tom really loves me and i'm going to figure it out but he's going to be there and um Meanwhile, he is, you know, obviously for him, he's he's the center of the show, right? So he is, um, he meets somebody else, right? Life is going on for him as well. Um, and she's just completely shocked by that. So I, I think there was, for me, this really important question of what does somebody do when their world is upended in that way or when something that they thought they were entitled to or somebody and and a sort of situation like a whole social situation around her her partner who has much more money than she does um you know when that whole situation is exploded um what does she like what action does she take in response to that you know yeah i think yeah entitlement and privilege are two things that the book dissects really skillfully um both kind of on a personal level but throughout the book there's kind of a simmering you know the wider events are in the u.s uh are kind of simmering in the background i suppose um mm, yeah. and there is always a sense that i don't know that uh, those conflicts are playing out within the relationship between uh tom and lydia in that you know tom's a much older He's a, he's a boomer who's, you know, might not consider himself to be too privileged um, because he's an academic rather than, um, I don't know, a banker or whatever, <laughs> but um, is very uh, materially comfortable. And Lydia's comfort, material comfort, comes from him because she lives with him. And then, but she feels a sense of entitlement because she's younger and, and in, in the relationship she therefore feels. And I, I kind of wondered how consciously you were trying to... Um, draw parallels to the wider situation as you were writing the book 
um, and what you wanted to, to draw out? I think it, the broader situation definitely, I think, is infused into, into the sort of interpersonal situation, both, I think, in America and then um, as the, the novel goes on, there's, there's much more about the climate as well. So sort of the global, um, global catastrophe. I, th I think definitely in her situation, there is this question of like, you thought you had a certain importance and a certain level of comfort and suddenly, you know, all of that is, is decaying. And I think there's, I wouldn't necessar necessarily say it's a direct parallel, but I think there's definitely um, like a resonance, let's say, with like moving from the U.S. in the 20th century to the U.S. in the 21st century. And the, um, especially in New York, you know, it's the book is she lived in New York. I grew up in New York and, and now live here again. And um, that feeling that you you were sort of in the center of the universe um, is now obviously not the case in the same way. And it was never true, right? But um, I think the sort of, the decay of a lot of American self-delusion or the maybe not quite, um, it's not quite over. We have other, other delusions now, but the, let's say the sort of fallout of um, a series of maybe false ideas about who we are and what we represent, I think, mm -hmm. um, really permeates I mean, the book. It, yeah. She doesn't actually move far, I guess, to, she, to, to Brooklyn, but that's kind of almost far enough to be in another world uh, with in the way that the other characters respond to her after she's been left by Tom. Um, and yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting as an outsider to New York and only have visited a couple of times that tension. Um, yeah. yeah. I think it's also just because her, a lot of her social life was, was through him. And, um, and obviously, you know, she, she, once, once he leaves her, um, she no longer has that whole, um, world of sort of professor types and sort of, you know, relatively well-to-do or well-to-do, uh, people to hang out with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, I guess the next thing I wanted to talk about, um, and yeah. it's always trying to dance around giving things away to people mm -hmm. who haven't read the book being a bookseller uh <laughs> at all times um is the flip side of privilege uh is uh in the novel really i thought was shame and the way that mm. um shame is dealt with uh the way the way that because of lydia's choices uh the other characters expect her to feel shame but i yeah. didn't get the sense that for most of the novel that she does um and i thought that that was one of the most interesting things about it really um and yeah i wondered what made you want to explore shame in that um fashion and well, what you were trying to do with it i suppose because we talked a bit before how when you've described the plot of the book to people uh the obvious and lazy comparison is lolita because you have an older person and a younger person but I, I think the novel your novel is doing something totally different but it, it, there is still an investigation of shame occurring. So I wondered if you could just talk a little bit more about that and what it is you were trying to access, I suppose. I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of, of um, 
of shame throughout the book in in different ways um obviously i think you know at the beginning um when tom leaves lydia there is this feeling that you know I mean, when anybody leaves you, especially when it's somebody that you weren't expecting to leave you there, I mean, shame, of course, comes into that and, and vulnerability and, and lots of other things that, that make you question um, your own, you know, your sense of self, uh, your self-worth, if, if you want to call it that. Um, and I think that a lot of what she does is, I think... Um, like almost like a desire to push shame away, you know, like I think we don't, and this is intentional. I, I didn't, I, I tried to not be too explicit about what she's feeling internally for, for a lot of the book. Um, so we're sort of trying, I think much of the time we're trying to figure out kind of why she's doing what she's doing and, and how she really feels about it. And I think how, how bad she really does or doesn't feel about it. Um, it's probably appropriate to to let on now that Lydia's reaction um, to Tom leaving her um, is that, well, a few months later, sort of by chance, she reconnects with Tom's son, Caleb, who is 19 and from a previous relationship of Tom's. And Lydia and Caleb um, sort of start something. I, this is the part I actually always feel really awkward about trying to talk about because I don't really know if I should say like she seduces him or do I say she pursues him or do I say like you know that they start a relationship it's like a very kind of tense moment but I think you could say that a lot of that one thing is her maybe sort of angry because she doesn't want to deal with the shame of yeah. him leaving her in a way. I think that moment's really interesting in the book, though, because it goes to what you were saying earlier on about what, yeah, the t the, the the technique that you the, the the way that you write it, which part of what makes it so affecting, I think, is that we get a lot of the effects, but not the affect. You know, mm. characters do yeah. things, and we often we don't really know why, and and to, to to well, we do know why, but we can speculate as to why as readers, but we're not told why. Um, mm. and to read a novel that's in close third, you know, where you're kind of inside the character's head but but perhaps not inside the character's feelings was yeah. really powerful i think um and i wonder where that came from uh and how you landed on that because i think that some of the really knotty questions that you're grappling with in the book um are really well served by how you yeah how you kind of cleave away for giving us too much and forcing us as readers to make our own um i suppose uh come to our come to our own decisions about why the characters might be doing certain things so i wondered how yeah how you how you'd come up with that i think um you know it, it wasn't really like it became like with so many things right when you're writing you know it, it starts out and then you start to see what you have done and then you think okay i think this is working this is um this is something I want to maximize in my, my editing process, right? But it wasn't really something that I, I, I didn't have a moment where I sat down and I thought, you know, should this be in first person? Should this be in close third? Or, you know, I, I didn't really um, 
I, I didn't really experiment with other ways of doing it, if that makes sense. Um, but I think just writing Lydia, you know, she is somebody who is not very, um, let's say she, she, she's not very aware of, of let's she doesn't have a lot of insight i guess might be the best way to put it she's not very aware of why she does things she doesn't really have a lot of um introspection and mm -hmm. so i think the style in a way came from like not necessarily wanting the writing to get ahead of where the characters were you know like if i had if i had tried to explain it too much it would have been actually more than than what is actually happening in the situation because the characters don't really know if that makes sense. And Caleb, I think, also doesn't really know. I mean, you can think, okay, it has to do with various things about his relationship with his father and his um, his past. He's had kind of a, a very difficult few years. He's had some um, problems with uh, mental health and substances that he's he's not really totally sure um how to think about the narrative that he's been told about those problems and so i think there is this thing of like the characters are not sure what is happening and yeah. that's why the prose is like that yeah yeah no that makes sense but i think also what's interesting about it is that especially the central characters lydia and caleb mm -hmm. they almost they, they they lack introspection but they also kind of refuse to reflect on what's happened so that um things events seem to kind of tumble onwards because of that and uh, that to me felt like a really powerful um reflection of <laughs> uh the chaos of modern life is mm. is is not only the lack of introspection but the kind of refusal um to dwell on that lack of introspection or to try and find a way back to introspection um yeah yeah that's really interesting yeah i hadn't i hadn't thought about that but um it it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think part of it is that I don't know. Like, if they if they thought too much about what they were doing, I don't think they'd necessarily be able to do it. Or maybe maybe that's not true. I'm not totally sure. But it, it's like the kind of activity or kind of choices that come out of being able unable to face other things that are deeper that are really happening. You know, and if you could face those things, then you would just be totally different. You know, they would be totally different people doing totally different things. Like, I think it would change the whole book if mm -hmm. they had that capacity, you know? Yeah, definitely. Well, um, next question I had is perhaps a bit of a kind of painfully obvious one, but it's to do with the timing of the book. Because uh, you, I wondered whether you were finishing it during the pandemic or at the beginning of the pandemic. Or at least it's been kind of published into the pandemic. Um, and do you felt that affected uh it at all or has it affected your feelings about it, its reception because i know also you're on the other side of the world um and not able to come see it in burley fisher's window or all that stuff um i wondered if that had had any effect yeah i mean i so i had i, I wrote basically the beginning of it um obviously in london largely in your bookshop then I moved back and I wrote sort of, I had maybe up to like, let's say I had three fifths of the book. Then I actually wrote the, the ending of the book. There's like a part three, which is much shorter. 
um, I wrote part three. And then the most difficult part that really, um, really I, I left to last was sort of to, to bridge from sort of maybe the, the midpoint of the book to the end and to figure out if I was going to use the end that I had written mm. and, and that really surprised me. Um, and so that actually happened um, during the pandemic. That last, like, let's say like the fourth, fifth, the sort of penultimate part of the book. Um, I did finish during the pandemic. And I think it, it was very helpful to suddenly not be able to go anywhere or do anything and be like alone um, at home yeah. trying to, to grapple with, with this problem. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I feel like it, it takes away your. So sorry, I didn't reply to your email excuses in your head. <laughs> yeah, or exactly. the version of that for writing. It's uh, yeah. Some people have found it definitely very focusing. Yeah, and I, yeah. I, I'd love to talk to you about the end, but we can't do. We mustn't do that because people have to buy the book. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe yeah. we'll have to do. We'll have to do a follow up when everyone's read it and we can talk yeah. about that. We can probably yeah. elliptically touch on the end in in certain ways, but yeah, we can't really yeah. talk about it. I mean, I suppose I suppose that's what I was trying to get at with the question about the pandemic because. I think the stakes of the novel become clear at the end. Um, mm. In a way, yeah, they emerge slowly and then quite quickly at the end. Would be a, a, perhaps a, an oblique way of talking about it. <laughs> um, and yeah, I wondered, I, I guess that's when the, 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 the wider stuff, the way that the society is touching on the characters becomes clear and the way that they are affecting um, society as well um yeah yeah I wondered, that's definitely true yeah i wondered i suppose <laughs> i was trying to think of a question a way of asking it that's yeah. bleak. how you how you landed on on the ending which is you know it, it is quite distinctive and and it and it is a departure from the rest of the novel um yeah i hope that's bleak enough yeah no <laughs> i think it is i mean it is it, it is it's bleak enough it has Honest, the honest answer like sounds really cliched, which is that I just actually sat down and wrote like the first couple paragraphs of the ending and was like, what, um, what is this? And um, it's not only like there are narrative things that are um, a surprise. The, the tone of the book also, I think, changes. There's like a, the, the prose style is is a little bit different towards the end as well and so that was a big um a big surprise um but i think yeah i mean it it actually a lot of the the ideas for it were actually quite um sort of presented themselves very naturally in a way that is sort of actually one of the easiest parts of the whole book to to write and then the problem was figuring out you know, can I use this or is this just like too weird? Mm -hmm. um, is this like too much of a departure? But I think um, it is like there's like a crescendo where there, there's a lot of stuff that is um, sort of subtly, hopefully, you know, layered into the book earlier on um, as we see these characters who, well, Lydia in particular is... is I mean, I, I kind of, I don't have a great word for it. I'm like tempted to say self-centered, except that I don't, I mean, she is, but she also like this, I don't, it, this, I, the, my hesitation is that she's very self-centered, but she also, I think, 
doesn't there's like there's also this kind of weird blankness or, or void in her um mm-hmm. character where it's like seems sort of almost inappropriate to say that she's like self-centered because it's sort of like what is at the center of that you know but um I yeah think, and i think some of yeah some of her behavior is very destructive to a self a truly self-centered person perhaps um might not uh yeah uh, yeah i don't know make the yeah. decisions that she makes yeah, yeah totally yeah. but yeah well, but i think this sort of um these a the, lot of this sort of small cruelties or um the types of decisions that she tends to make throughout the book, I think really come to fruition at the end. And you see the consequences of, um, you know, instrumentalizing people in various ways or um, not think the consequences of not thinking about consequences really. Um, yeah. 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 That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, well, I think to round off, we should, um, we talked before about, uh, three books that really influenced you or were important to you um, while you were writing Cold New Climate and which uh, could act as recommendations as well or as primers <laughs> to, to readers who are coming to the book. So I wondered if we could just go through them one by one. Um, yeah, so please take it away. Which, which, which is number one on your list? Well, I mean, I don't want to... I don't want to really necessarily put them in any particular order, but... Um the the myth of phaedra and in particular the the classical french tragedy of phaedre which is obviously um or not obviously i don't know why i said obviously it's not obvious to most people it's uh, jean racine and um he so this is like a, a i think 17th century um or possibly 18th a, a play um which is based on a greek myth um that uh centers on phaedra the um she's like a uh um I, I think she's born a princess but she she's married to theseus and then she basically um develops an intense erotic obsession with theseus's um steps or theseus's son her stepson hippolytus and um that myth especially the racine version um had a had a big effect on me um Hmm. i was very obsessed with this french play as a teenager which um tells you how cool i was (laughs) but um yeah so there's sort of a few a few actual textual references or slight like easter eggs there's a lot of um a lot of uh blushing in the in the novel which there's also a lot of blushing in the tragedy and then also i read um a couple other iterations or you know um versions of that myth i read the um the euripides version which is called hippolytus which is a play um i read the i read ann carson's translation and then also um the russian poet marina tsvetaeva wrote a play on the same subject so so the whole myth i think um really inspired the the plot so those are sort mm. of three that i'm kind of counting as one i'm i'm cheating yeah I think that's that that's that's fair, and it shows that the the old stories are the best ones, the the ones that mm. keep coming back. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think the central situation of the play, I mean, or sorry, of the book, whatever I wrote, um, obviously comes from from that. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, and the second one is a book that I absolutely love, "Play as It Lays" by Joan Didion, hey. um, which one which you um when you put it in when you sent it to me i was like ah okay that makes a lot of sense because i think 
it has a similar yeah. surface to your to your book yeah that um, is so interesting you know i feel i love play it as it lays and i feel like a lot of people don't like it as much as her other novels but it is my favorite everybody seems to think a book of common prayer is the best one but i love play it as it lays so me too it's like uh, yeah. dissolute yeah <laughs> and but yeah. also so beautiful um yeah yeah mm. But it obviously, I mean, it has very, let's say, unlikable, difficult to like um, main character, uh, female main character, Mariah Wyeth. And it has, I think, um, lots of driving of Mariah America and this sort of tense, I think, um, sort of, yeah, tense and terse uh, prose style that... um, really inform my writing but I actually think most importantly it's it's great that you've actually read that book because there is like a formal change in cold new climate that I'm I'm not going to tell people what it is but there are a couple formal things that happen later in the book that I don't think I would have done if I hadn't read um play it as it lays which is obviously partly in first person and partly in um in third person and i i don't know if you if you read interviews with her about it she says didion says that um she had parts of it in first person and parts of it in third person and then eventually she was just like well i'm just gonna have to go with it that way like she had been thinking i have to switch one or the other and eventually she was like okay well this is just what this book is and that example was very important to me um in in putting this book together yeah i mean it makes total sense with the i'm glad that she did stick with it it develops, yeah. and it's 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 a way of developing the character that most that I never that I hadn't read before. Um, yeah, before I read yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, And then the final one, uh, another classic, Henry Jet, which yeah. I hadn't read. He, classic, he said, with great authority, having never <laughs> read. Uh, Henry James's The Wigs of the Dove. So tell us a bit yeah. about that. Well, that is, I mean, it's such a beautiful book. I really recommend uh, reading it. But it's um about um these couple uh kate croy and merton denscher kate i'm getting very brief story, but kate um is sort of being taken care of by a very wealthy aunt uh wants to marry merton who is a or denscher who's like a penniless journalist her wealthy aunt thinks it's um a terrible idea and so when Densher makes the acquaintance of this very wealthy American heiress um, who also really likes him. Um, Kate basically tries to orchestrate a situation in which um, Merton Densher will will marry the heiress Millie Teal, who is who is dying, and um, Kate and Merton Densher will have all the money in the end. Uh, so. Anyway, long summary, classic. probably unnecessary. Classic marriage yeah. money plot. Exactly. We love, we love a, exactly. Ma- a marriage money plot. <laughs> but I think this idea of like instrumentalizing another person or like both in the relationship between Caleb and Lydia and the question of, you know, how that triangulates around Tom. And then um, basically another thing of sort of how Caleb and Lydia get together, Lydia sort of uses another person in a way. So I think these, all of these relationships where there's uh, sort of a, a triangular thing where one person is, um, is kind of, 
I don't know, like serving as a kind of hinge or not even hinge, but like something to negotiate around, if that makes sense. Um, I think that setup um, was just was very um, well, I got that from the wings of the dove. And there's also a scene. um, There's a scene later in the book that was was very inspired by um, the last scene of the wings of the dove, which is amazing. And you should really read it. Okay. But it's it's yeah, very long. It's like seven hundred pages long, and it's uh, yeah, it's late James, so it's it's sort of tough to get into sometimes. But it's highly recommended. Okay, that will be um, so. Well, that's, yeah, great recommendations and three very very varied as well. So um, we'll yeah. put those in the liner notes so that people can Thanks. Uh, buy them alongside your book. Um, cool. Yeah, and just once more thanks so much for joining us on the podcast and um thanks for writing the book um and wow. yeah making thank you <laughs> thank you so much for having me of burley fisher and hopefully we can have you in the back of the shop once again sometime soon on a on a yeah. rectangular table <laughs> i would love that i would love that yeah i'm um i'm hoping that yeah that once things open up again it will be possible so we'll see well hope to see you soon and uh Speak, speak, speak later. Bye bye. Speak later. Bye bye. Thank you. Well, thank you so much to Isabel for joining us on the show, and thank you to Mr. Fisher for his incisive questions. Thank you, Sam. My very great pleasure, Dan. Um, I'm glad that you enjoyed it so much with <laughs> such authenticity in your um, warm response, <laughs> as always. <laughs> So tell us, tell us what we got Always coming up next. A pleasure. Oh, we have some really, really exciting guests coming up next. Uh, me and Ant last week interviewed the great Richard Dawson, alt folk indie uh, songwriter, um, and he is giving us some of his book recommendations and general views on music and the world. Can't wait for that one. Uh, coming up, we have Owen Haverly, author of Red Metropolis, and a new book on the ruins of modernism the slightly longer title that I can't remember right now. <laughs> Very professional. This is why you write your intros, Dan. Uh, you <laughs> don't, don't find yourself in these kind of pickled situations, do you? Eh? Not so smug now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was coming on the show and we're very excited. Um and can we tell people what our indie fiction is next month, Sam? No, it's it's highly it's highly secret. Um I do know. I do know. It's not because I don't okay. know. It sounds like I don't know, but I do know. Um, but yeah, no, we, we will announce that and there will be a podcast. I can let you know that it's translated. Um, so Ooh, uh, it might be with the translated podcast, but it, it's a fantastic book. Um, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. <laughs> so watch your space on Twitter's Instagram and email. Are we on any other social media? Email. Yep. The old email. The Classic. old email. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that note, uh, I'm going to say goodbye for me. And goodbye from me. Take it easy. Yeah, See you in the shop. Bye-bye.